We've gotten very good as a U.S. government, as a policy community, as a body politic at discussing threats and risks related to Chinese technology and our interdependence with China. What we need to fundamentally do is take a step back and ask the question, what kind of relationship do we want to have with China in the technology realm and beyond? It's a very, very simple, almost obvious question. It's a blatantly obvious question. And yet it's so rare to find analysis in Washington that begins with a clear answer to that question. U.S.-China tech relations, a holistic approach, 160 plus pages of um, meditation on what the U.S. should do uh, in response to the China threat from a technology perspective, was recently written up by John Bateman, a newly minted senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. He previously worked at DIA on cyber policy in the Defense Department and was most recently before leaving government, special assistant for Joint Chiefs of Staff General Dunford. Co-hosting with me today is my Rhodium colleague, Charlie Vest. John and Charlie, welcome to China Talk. Thanks for having me. Having me. Great to be here. So John, setting aside sort of the, the Trump personalized policy execution with regards to tech in China, how do you think the deep state did in analyzing the China threat and grappling with the tech policy trade-offs that um, China's rise has arisen? Well, first of all, I think we have to grade a little bit on a curve here because the ways of thinking about Chinese technology threats and opportunities have changed drastically in such a short period of time. Um, I think you can say maybe the last 10 years has been the key shift uh, and the shift has accelerated significantly in the last five years. So you know, 2020, uh, 2012 is when the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence put out this big report on Huawei and CTE. That was one of the first public shots across the bow. 2017, Trump came into office, started doing some of the big stuff against Huawei and others in 2018, 2019. Um, so this is a head-spinning, radical reversal of prior U.S. assumptions about the kind of relationship and engagement that we seek to have with China economically and technologically. Um, I think one good thing is the United States has become much sharper in identifying the risks of technological interdependence with China. There's a much more fulsome conversation about complicity in human rights abuses, potential espionage threats, potential sabotage threats, influence operations, um, and unfair economic practices, including trade secret theft. Um, so the supply chain analysis is smarter. Um, the policy analysis is, you know, there's more of it, at least. Um, I think where we've still failed, and this is both the government and the larger policy community, is we're struggling to grasp the complexity of the U.S.-China tech relationship and the risks of a precipitous decoupling. Um, so notice, for example, we often default to very vague terminology like competition to describe what we're seeking to do with China. Uh, it's a very, very appealing term. We want to compete. Uh, it sounds strong, but in a way that's not aggressive or provocative. Um, it can easily blend together economic competition, military competition, other forms. Um, but when we talk in terms of tech competition as our goal, we miss so much of the complex relationship with China. We miss that China is not only a competitor, it's a supplier, it's a talent base, it's a manufacturing hub, it's 
a financier and financee. It's an export market. And ultimately, it's a great power and an emerging superpower we have to deal with. Um, so I think we've got a ways to go to integrate all of these complexities into a holistic picture of the China tech relationship. Yeah, I mean, thinking about the Blinken line, right? Competitive when it should be, collaborative when it can be, adversarial when it must be. You know, defining competitive, collaborative, and adversarial is one thing. Defining should, can, <laughs> and must is another. And that's like an enormous three by three. And each one of those has like a ton of questions that fall out of it of like, you know, what are your tolerances for um, for for risk along a, a, a lot of dimensions and like every decision of putting something in one of those three by, you know, one of those nine buckets has a ton of, um, you know, second and third order effects. So maybe, uh, you know, as we start this conversation, John, like what are the limits of what it is possible to sort of understand and project forward? Um, you know, I think both of us agree that um, that the, you know, that the sort of that the U.S. government and the broader analytic uh, community in the West is not close to them. But I feel like just trying to understand stuff about um, sort of interdependent 21st century economies, there is a bit of unknown that there's going to be um, regardless of how, um, you know, of whether the um, U.S. government ends up uh, starting a $500 million office of net tech assessment um, in the next few years to start to try to answer these questions. I, I ran across this term in philosophy, and I'm probably grossly mischaracterizing it, but the term is hyperobject. And what I recall it means is it's a thing that is so massive and textured and complicated that you can't even look at it or consider it or analyze it all at once. You can only approach it in pieces. And that's how I've come to see the U.S.-China technology relationship. Um, you know, when I started doing this research, I was hoping very naively to come to some clear conclusion about where and how this relationship is on net helpful or harmful to U.S. interests economically, national security wise. Um, it's hard to even get to a ground truth factually about all of the deep ways in which the two countries are intermeshed. And by the way, I keep talking about the US and China. Of course, we're talking about much of the globe. And it might be better to think about the US and China as two kind of knotty masses in this big spider web um, that connects you know, the entire rest of the world, either through a technology supply chain or through technology markets or you know, the open science and tech ecosystem. So I think anyone making policy in this area needs to approach this with great humility. And then you asked also about projecting it into the future. You know, to project this relationship into the future and to assess how U.S. interests could or will shift over time, you then have to bring in so many other variables. Um, what's going to happen to the geopolitical order? How are other countries going to make these assessments about Chinese tech risks and opportunities? What happens when a new technology like you know, quantum computing comes online? How will that change the military balance, the economic balance? What will happen to the U.S. political system? And to what extent will we be able to generate smart policies and strategies in the future? Um, so just to say we've got to remain humble um, and I think develop a strategy that can actually account for uh, complexity and uncertainty. Well, uh, John, we got an hour to figure it out. So looking forward to uh, solving all of this with you. Um, so, so you argue that a strategy should have a vision of success, um, uh, an argument as to why that's the right vision and a plan for how to get there. And you 
segment the broader conversation around uh, U.S.-China technology into three main camps. You have the restrictionists, the centrists, and the cooperationists. Basically, the, the restrictionists want to cut ties as aggressively as possible. You have cooperationists on the other side of the spectrum who reject zero-sum framing and see you know, the opportunities for cooperation as really important, and the centrists are somewhere in the middle. Uh, so I, I think um, you know, longtime listeners of China Talk will hear um, echoes of all three of those camps across a number of uh, former guests that we've had on the show. But I'm curious, John, um, you know, what is the like in college debate terms, like value criterion that all of these camps appeal to? Are they arguing on the same, you know, are they arguing like in the same ballpark or um, are these folks really speaking at cross purposes when they're defining what you know, what, what the what the goals and most important things you should be trying to do in uh, with regards to these policy questions even are? On one level, I think they are speaking the same language in that all of these proposed strategies can be crudely reduced to some fundamental questions like, is the U.S.-China technology relationship zero-sum or non-zero-sum, and which country does it benefit the most over the long haul? Um, so the restrictionists tend to have a zero-sum mentality, the cooperationists tend to have a non-zero-sum mentality, and the centrists tend to have it both ways, as it were, by seeing some zero-sum elements of the relationship and some non-zero-sum elements. Now, if you're to try to go beneath that layer and have a really clear debate amongst these camps as to why they argue different things, um, it's very, very difficult to do that for a few different reasons. One is that I think too few people are really offering very explicit, clear, robust versions of their own vision, their endgame, and laying them out for public scrutiny. So if I do anything in my recent report, I hope to offer a clear and explicit and robust version of what I call this centrist middle path and lay it out for scrutiny so that people can critique it and comment on it and kind of challenge people with different views to be as clear as I try to be about the second and third order consequences and how we would go about achieving whatever it is we believe our ultimate vision is and what would be gained or lost along the way. Um, but to really compare these... Um, you need to then start unspooling so many sub-arguments that we as a society often get stuck on. Um, so like, for example, uh, are we better off moving toward a more autarkic economic system where we use the tools of industrial policy and protectionism to nurture our own industries? Would that lead to greater jobs and growth and innovation? Or is it better to continue on this kind of largely globalized economic path of fairly untrammeled free trade. Now, now, to answer that question, you then have to get into these classic debates about the goals of economic policy, distribution, efficiency. You have to consider political economic questions, like who are the winners and the losers, and how that goes to you know the political stability of our country. Um, so, And then ultimately, you need to answer questions about China and about technology. And I'm no China expert, just to be clear here. Um, so it's difficult for me to try to adjudicate these debates about China's long-term intentions uh, and capabilities. I, I have my hunches, but I think it's really important for us to allow ourselves to exist in a moment of ambiguity and say, 
this is a new era where US-China relations are very much in flux and emerging technologies have very unclear global consequences. So the benefit of a centrist strategy, I believe, is that it allows us to hedge for a variety of different scenarios. One of the things that I really liked about the framework that you set up in your report um, is that it, it does sort of give you an opportunity to challenge existing assumptions about what tools are appropriate and what the consequences of using those tools will be. I mean, you've been quite um, active in the debate uh, that's just come up within the last week on, uh, you know, putting Hikvision on the SDN list. And, uh, you know, there's, there's, a, there's something really nice to... Uh, be able to sort of point to these tools and the, 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 the implications that they have um, and question what would be an otherwise a fairly sort of easy position to fall into that, of course, I mean, Hikvision is, a, is a, you know, undeniably a, a serious human rights concern. And, um, and, and so it would be simple in a way to just sort of accept that on its face that, and, you know, even extreme sort of tools uh, would would make sense in that case, but so I, I appreciate the the sort of approach that you take in, in sort of opening up the debate about what uh, what sort of tools are appropriate and, and whatnot. I think that's right. I think in some ways, once you set your strategy, and that's the overarching vision and kind of how you will think about trade offs, you're then left with two more practical questions: what technologies or aspects of the U.S. China tech relationship are most sensitive and strategic and in needing of some kind of rewiring or decoupling? And what tools will you use to do that? Uh, the hike vision and debate is really interesting because it pushes us in one of the most challenging areas, which is how the United States should contend with this growing techno-authoritarianism in China. Um, I very much, very much am concerned about what I see as the Chinese government kind of expanding the modern frontiers of social control using new technologies and creating new forms of authoritarianism that could be harder to resist, more durable over time. And to the extent that we have technological ties with China, that makes us complicit in those. So I think it's important that we be thoughtful about ways that we can reduce that compl uh, complicity. On the other hand, to some degree, what we call Chinese techno-authoritarianism really could just be described as the Chinese political system being implemented in an age of digital technology. So China's political system ultimately can be described as a dominant party state that controls society very forcefully and that controls and manipulates the flow of information. So if we're going to coexist with China and to some degree accept the reality of that political system, however much we disagree with it, I think we need to accept that we're probably not going to be able to change that political system through sanctions like those on hike vision. Uh, that means that human rights related concerns that we have with China Tech should really focus on the worst of the worst abuses, where it's crucial for us to limit our complex, uh, complicity, and maybe we could make some difference. Uh, hike vision is an example of that, and so that's why I support all of the restrictions that we placed on the company so far. Um, they can't get U.S. investment. They can't get U.S. imported goods without a license. Um, and very soon, they won't be able to sell any products in the United States. But placing Hikvision on the SDN list is sort of a declaration of economic war against at least a segment of the Chinese economy. We're saying that an otherwise normal global Chinese company, due to its atrocious human rights record, is going to be 
blacklisted on the international stage using the most powerful tools that we have. It's a very provocative step. I don't think it's going to get us anything as far as Xinjiang atrocities and, and solving those. Um, but I do think it's going to push us on this path of an ever accelerating decoupling that is harder and harder for Washington to control. Sure. So, you know, you, you just articulated like a classic centrist take, right? Is like, yeah, there's this issue. We should do some stuff. We shouldn't do everything. Um, my question for you is like, there is an appeal. There is always an appeal in nuance, right? In that, look, we are people who work and sit at think tanks. And if the answer was really simple, we wouldn't have jobs. Um, um, but I think more, uh, less facetiously, orienting a giant bureaucracy around nuance is a hard thing to do and get right. And it's much, you're, you're much more likely to have like, like effective policy execution if it is on a, on principles which are sort of more simpler and more declarative. I'm curious for your sort of thoughts and reflections on to what extent orienting towards more nuanced policies is is self-defeating in that like you may end up not even not not getting the sort of uh, the 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 positive effects of like good or quick or effective execution that you may would if you if you simplified and were more black and white about things. I think that's a really important question, Jordan. And I thought about these issues a lot because I'm a former U.S. government official myself. And I haven't been involved in the regulatory apparatus that I critique in my research, but I know what it's like to be involved in interagency deliberations about a whole range of matters. And you've got to make tough decisions and you've also got to push the ball forward. Um, so two things I'm very conscious about is I don't think we in the think tank community should... Um, gleefully wrap the U.S. government's knuckles for not having a clear public strategy without also acknowledging that that's kind of in the DNA of the U.S. government is to frequently not have clear public strategies. And there's lots of good reasons for that. Um, U.S. leaders really uh, prize preserving their own discretion. Um, they don't want adversaries to know what they're up to. They don't want political opponents to attack them for making tough decisions before those decisions have to be made. They want to save their powder for another day. Um, and also, I don't want to be that think tank guy who gives a broad overarching pitch for something like centrism without explaining what that actually looks like. Um, so I think the burden on people like me is to offer very concrete standards or objectives, almost like analytical tools that someone in the Commerce Department or CFIUS um, or the State Department could use to bring into an interagency discussion about something like the creation of a new export control. Um, that's why, for example, uh, when my discussion of maintaining a military edge, you know, I'm concerned that the Department of Defense has sometimes in the past used its voice on technology issues very amorphously to make it sound like almost no relationship with China is safe from a military perspective when it comes to technology. And so my recommendation for DOD is to be tougher in its own analysis to actually use specific defense planning objectives and scenarios and to then walk backward and say, what are the technology milestones that the PLA could achieve that would actually significantly alter 
the chance of DoD mission success in, you know, let's say it was, you know, defending or resupplying Taiwan. Now, if you can answer that question, you can then walk backward to a potential justification for an export control or a visa restriction, uh, a similar type of CFIUS type restrictions. Um, if you can't do that, then um, I really think that you should take a pause and consider what actually you're trying to accomplish. So you spent a lot of time in, at DIA and um, Senator Bennett just uh, yesterday, March 11th, said in a, in a hearing on China and tech competition that we found through our work on this committee that while the Intel community looks at China and other countries and what they're doing on emerging technologies, no one in government is looking at how such trends compare to U.S. cyber, um, U.S. private sector trends. And he was pitching a bill that he's currently writing up for a new office of technology net assessment that would review U.S. competitiveness and technologies critical to economic and national security base, fusing intelligence, commercial and open source data. Um, what do people do all day if they don't do that and what you talked about? Um, that's a great question. So let, let me kind of come at that a, a couple different ways. So um, there's a set of robust processes inside the U.S. government for you know considering things like proposed export controls, visa restrictions, CFIUS actions. There's lots of discussion in place. Um, there's also a ton of analysis being done in the intelligence community and the military to understand what adversaries are up to, um, to do net assessments of, of different kinds. Um, I think sometimes there are failures, first of all, in integration. Um, so like, for example, when I was an intelligence analyst, we would be asked how a foreign adversary could conduct cyber operations against the United States. And we might be able to say generally what those cyber capabilities were, but to give a really um, practical assessment of what that would look like if it affected a U.S. network, we might then have to know something about the U.S. banking system, the U.S. pipeline system. Now, these are things that the intelligence community doesn't study. So to understand those things, you'd then have to have a relationship with parts of the government to, to do study those things. You'd now need to work out parameters so that you're not collecting intelligence on U.S. persons. Um, there's lots of hurdles and hinks in the system that prevent sometimes us from doing the most robust assessments possible. Um, I think one of the things that I worry about is that the parts of the government in charge of imposing new restrictive measures um, like BIS and the Commerce Department uh, just seem to be under-resourced and kind of slow in carrying out the necessary investigations and analyses that have been given to them. So it kind of creates a potential worst of both worlds situation where we create these huge restrictive authorities um, like this ICTS supply chain security rule that would allow commerce to potentially review and block almost any China-related technology transaction that occurs at a large scale. But then because we under-resource the implementers of those policies, very little actually gets done in terms of targeted restrictions being announced. So instead, you kind of spook the herd. You send the signal that you're willing to potentially go to the hilt in terms of restrictive measures, but you're very, very slow in actually doing that. Um, there was just a story this last week about uh, an, a long-running investigation of solar panels and how Commerce Department is struggling to get to the end of the line there and give clarity to U.S. solar panel uh, deployers. Um, so I think there's a lot that we could do just to lubricate this analysis and uh, fund more robust um, uh, assessments and critiques. Yeah. So 
moving away from the deficiencies in the system, let's let's paint a beautiful future. Um, t- taking your sort of centrism uh, framework as a base and and understanding that there are going to be trade offs on both sides. How do you start addressing, um, you know, doing the real analytical work to to try to quantify and project forward the impact of risks on um, on on the various trade offs and, you know, export control, supply chains, the whole gambit of uh, of uh, policy questions that you raise in your paper? So um, I think the smart way to do that is, first of all, um, so we have a strategy in place, right? So I've got my centrist strategy. Uh, then from there, you need to define a set of more particular policy objectives. And, you know, this is, you know, already very broad, but, you know, I propose nine of these. Um, now, just to give you some examples of what these are, you know, maintaining a military edge over China is one objective. Um, preventing Chinese sabotage in a crisis is another objective. And limiting Chinese influence operations is a third objective. So just starting from the premise that these things are each different, and that in each area, our job is to set um, realistically achievable goals with the tools that we have on relevant timelines, and then to start to consider both the risks of continued technological interdependence with China and the risks of a precipitous decoupling and the limitations of the restrictive measures that are sometimes used. Um, I think that once you start doing that analysis, uh, you very quickly realize that um, there's actually good reasons for being a centrist, because we actually can't do everything that we'd like to do simply with these restrictive tools. Um, So to give one example, there's been tremendous concern in the last few years about a category amorphously described as Americans' data or Americans' personal data. And, you know, Pompeo at one point in the Trump administration said, we are systematically reviewing every case in which any American data crosses into China. Um, And we've got these kind of bizarre claims out there that's like 80 percent of Americans' personal data has been obtained by China, whatever actually that means. Um, But what would it actually look like to try to protect this data? Um, There's some kind of data that we probably can protect, like genetic information. So CFIUS has blocked Chinese companies from purchasing American firms with access to large databases of Americans' genetic data. If the Chinese intelligence community got access to that data, that could give them decades worth of very valuable, unique intelligence to allow them to target U.S. officials. Great. Good job, CFIUS. Now, on the other hand, CFIUS has also said that it will be taking a close look at Americans' geolocation data. Now, geolocation data, I'm sad to say, is virtually unregulated, ubiquitous, and easily available to any actor. Um, It's been publicly reported that the U.S. military and the intelligence community are just purchasing bulk geolocation data from a wide range of actors so that we can target others. I'm sure China is doing the same thing. So, you know, CFIUS is going to be not really the best tool for stopping that from happening. I I did like your note. Um, This... (laughs) About the DOD telling uh, armed forces personnel not to use TikTok, and like literally half of my TikTok is like military jokes. <laughs> um, but um, uh, yeah, it's it's trying to se- setting your setting your goals too high and not achieving them doesn't it doesn't maybe it makes you sound cool on a soundbite, but it doesn't like end up having a lot of impact. Coming back to this um, sort of analytical challenge. Once we have our principles, um, 
it was it was interesting um, because a lot of your questions, you know, they a, a lot of the, the the conclusions of your chapters were basically like, we need a lot of smart people to think about this very hard. Um, and, and, and and a lot of the questions have these sort of economic tinges, which I think are um, are, are really difficult. And it was really concerning to me because it, I, the, the one thing I figured that the uh, sort of uh, IC defense establishment could think about would be, OK, emerging technology plus like military capabilities. And if we're not even doing that um, uh, in a in a way that's rigor enough, rigorous enough for you not to have to write recommendations about it um, in a think tank piece, then the the concern that I would have is like, OK, um, taking that and then thinking broadly about sort of industrial base health and supply chains and 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 the further you get away from the strictly um, the, the military stuff where um you'd expect the intelligence community to have a sort of analytical comparative edge, um, the trickier it gets. So, so a few questions fall out of that. Um, how do you build up this capability? To what extent um, will the government inevitably have to rely on outside, um, uh, you know, outside actors? Um, how ambitious should and shouldn't think tanks be when trying to take on these questions? Um, what What's the sort of division of labor that you think is, is is correct for um, you know unknotting things around uh, what makes most sense for uh, for stuff like export controls. So just starting from the think tank perspective, which is one I I know intimately, um, I really didn't want to write another report that says we should just do smart, prudent things and avoid doing stupid things and control the strategic things and not control the non-strategic things, and yet then refuse to take the next step about naming what some of those things are on either side of the line. So you're right that a lot of my proposals are more like analytical standards and questions that would guide future future regulatory decisions. But I do try to use case studies to be suggestive as to how someone with my views, which I think are the right views, could actually apply these in practice and what they would look like. So for example, I think the bulk power system is a great place to regulate Chinese involvement. And I don't fully understand why the Biden administration has for now walked back some of the Trump regulations there. I'm less concerned about TikTok. And so we can talk about that. But I think some of those actions are probably overhyped. Um, now, what would it mean to actually build up um, analytical capability in the U.S. government that's capable of making these decisions really well? Um, first of all, you'd need a tremendous amount of information. Uh, you'd need to map our supply chains and global supply chains better than we can today. Um, you'd also need a strong set of relationships. So when something like Hike Vision is being considered, uh, to what extent do people in the Commerce Department or the NSC uh, reach out to those in, you know, the surveillance sector industry and say, you know, is there excess capacity to actually produce better versions of these technologies that our allies could then purchase? Um, what would be the impact on the U.S. economy? Uh, are we talking to third country governments? You know, this FT report came out that suggested that we were briefing third country governments about our plans to place Hike Vision on the SDN list. Okay, well, let's start with sounding them out and hearing their willingness to comply and how they might respond. Um, are we talking to China about how it would respond to some of these actions? Um, so a lot of this is talking to people and collecting data. And I do think it makes a ton of sense to invest 
in organizations like BIS in the Commerce Department, which really don't have that big a budget compared to the strategic centrality they have in defining the most important international economic relationships that we have. Um, but then that money should come with clear instructions to refine and speed up existing regulatory work rather than broadly expanding it into new areas. Um, I think at a high level, we also need more uh, macroeconomic modeling of various strategic options available to the United States. Uh, so, for example, it's been proposed that in an extreme situation like a Chinese invasion of Taiwan, we might consider a total economic divorce from China. Well, I'd like someone to run the numbers on that, frankly. Um, would that reduce U.S. GDP by 5%, 15%? What would that do to things like the green energy transition or to our own political stability? If we can't answer those questions, then it's really not a credible threat or deterrence to China. Um, so we need to really give much, much greater thought at both the policy level and the strategy level to modeling and prediction. Yeah, I mean, that's that's uh, monumental. I mean, so Rhodium has done a bit of work on this sort of doing sectoral case studies about what would happen to, you know, the semiconductor industry, for instance, if that would happen, you know, if, if we saw, you know, an X percent decrease in, uh, you know, semiconductor sales, what would it mean for, you know, US R&D in this space? Um, but yeah, one of the things that that sort of jumps out and, um, yeah, I don't know, but uh, just thinking about, you uh, one of the things that the Biden administration have done that have been productive to this end, you know, I was really impressed with the work that, um, you know, agencies did on the critical supply chain review mm -hmm. process. I mean, I think that mm -hmm. was that was really heartening to me to see just the level of analytical rigor that went into that. And, you know, there's there's still a lot of questions to be answered about what exactly we want to do with that sort of stuff. But it's 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 already figuring into, uh, you know, policy making discussions, right? Like the mm -hmm. outbound investment screening uh, um, a bill that was proposed by uh, Senators Casey and Cornyn. I think there was a report like maybe a month ago or a few weeks ago that said that you know they're thinking about rejiggering that um, law to focus more on some of the specific findings taken out of the uh, supply chain uh, you know review process, which is still hugely broad, right? I mean, I think that's probably still unworkable, um, but it is to sort of take it back. It is very, um, it is a positive sign about what sort of capabilities we do have that we're producing material that this, that's, um, you know, as, as foundational, as helpful as that mm -hmm. stuff. So, mm -hmm. yeah, let me, let me push back on that on that a little bit, Charlie, because my read of that was that this is not a systematic overview. And mm -hmm. what was also kind of, because, because it felt like, oh yeah, here's like, Here's like a thing we're concerned about. And here's like another thing we're concerned about. And we're going to work on it. And the really scary thing was the amount of figures and facts that were not sort of like like USG produced, but that came from industry organizations and the firms themselves. And if you are sort of reliant on the companies who are smart enough to raise their hand and say, hey, guys, help me. Like, um, I'm critical. I need some love here. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. You're not going to end up with, um, you know, the right optimization of, okay, if you have X amount of money to invest in um, shoring up your supply chain, doing it in the smartest, um, uh, in, in the smartest way. So anyways, John, what, what was your take on that? Uh, so one thing I really loved about the Biden administration's 100-day supply chain review is that 
it started from the premise of let's examine threats to supply chain security and resilience rather than starting from a China premise, right? So you then sure. have a much broader conversation about, you know, industrial consolidation, workforce shortages, single supplier, weather issues, um, behavior of other countries, um, and China, right? So it all gets put into this larger stew, and it's a reminder that our policy objectives need to be framed in terms of U.S. interests, particularly for something like supply chain security, um, rather than combating or containing China in the first instance. Uh, so I thought that was a key intellectual move. Um, Jordan, I think you're right that ultimately the review was selective in that it only looked at four or five specific technologies, almost like case studies. And so you can question whether this is enough information for us to develop a larger national supply chain security and resilience strategy. And I think what that reminds us is it takes tremendous analytical effort and information yeah. to be able to pull the thread on even one industry. Um, that's where I get a little concerned about some of these massive proposals for a broad, amorphous outbound investment screening regime. Uh, you know, Rhodium has done some smart work about how the breadth of the major legislative proposal, the National Critical Capabilities Defense Act, could be profound. Um, it could affect a huge portion of U.S. to China FDI, and it could affect ongoing business operations of U.S. firms in China uh, who are simply trying to sustain their business and capitalize and recapitalize. Um, so if our knowledge about these supply chain vulnerabilities at a granular level is limited to these four or five things that we intensively studied, and if even in that case we're reliant on a lot of publicly available or commercially provided information, why are we then leaping to creating an incredibly sweeping and open-ended authority to that could affect U.S. investment and business activity in any number of areas that we haven't thought about and that we don't have information about? So I think always the first step is just to gather better data and do deeper analysis before we leap into the unknown. You lay out these like nine things, right? Like we should have leverage over China. We should you know, controlled information space, worry about our competitive advantage, worry about military balance. Comparing across those, is, is that even like assigning like, you know, you have like a hundred points to like weight across all those different things. Because I think, I think having that discussion is really important as you go down towards the, okay, towards the questions where you, you know, are, are faced with, okay, Hickvision, what do we do about mm -hmm. it? Um, yeah, so a really well-formed strategy would not only lay out policy objectives or goals, but start to consider internal prioritization and trade-offs amongst those things. And, and there's, there's quite a few. Um, I don't really deeply address this in my report, but I'll just spitball with you now. Um, things that I think are less important U.S. objectives for our China tech policy, um, first of all, limiting Chinese influence operations. Um, this is something I've done quite a bit of research on. Carnegie has a partnership for countering influence operations. And a lot of the experts who have looked deeply at this space will tell you that we really lack rigorous evidence suggesting that the kinds of things we worry about, um, these kind of uh, bursts of social media-oriented manipulation, bots, or algorithmic um, you know, alterations, um, there really isn't clear empirical evidence that those have the kinds of effects that people believe that they do, like swinging an election, for example. 
Um, so this is something that I would probably deprioritize and note that sometimes when we talk about Chinese influence, we're even talking about more slow roiling things like uh, Chinese propaganda seeking to over time sway Americans on their views of China and China related policy. I think we can handle that without banning TikTok. Um, another thing that I think probably gets a bit too much attention is this goal of preventing Chinese sabotage in a crisis. Um, so this is often trotted out to explain why we would need to remove Chinese equipment in various contexts that it could be sabotaged um, in some kind of military conflict or bilateral crisis through remote means or back doors. Now, if this were the bulk power system, this would be a really, really big problem. But if this were non-critical equipment, um, like you've had a number of people really uh, worry about uh, Lenovo and Lexmark, which you may recall are just like printer and like desk desktop computer manufacturers. They do these sort of you know con you know low grade consumer devices, and they sell them to state and local governments. And you have people banging the drum and saying we can't have state and local governments using like Lexmark printers or Lenovo laptops. I don't think that's really a realistic fear. What's really funny is the Chinese government is convinced that it is. And um, you know, just in the past, uh, over the past few years, you've seen uh, uh, them try to take the entire Microsoft like software stack out of state-owned enterprises and state and local governments and the national government. And like now it's happening. And there are all these posts on Weibo of people being like, Jesus Christ, like I can't do anything anymore. I can't use Microsoft. Like what is this Kingsoft crap? I mean, exactly. You know, I've, I've worked in the US government. I know how abysmal our IT is. Um, there was just a senior DOD official who resigned in a huff over our inability to innovate and use the latest and greatest technology. And he's one of like five or six people who've done this in the last year. And he told the story about how just the phone lines were down and the Pentagon help desk for a while. And he said, well, yeah, this is 2022. Like, why are our phone lines down? So there's some basic stuff that we need to get right. And we could cut ourselves, cut our nose off to spite our face if we prevent you know, a state agency from buying a Lexmark printer, you know, that's a, that's, you know, to buy the more, you know, less, um, the less cost competitive alternative, maybe a dollar that that state agency can't spend on ransomware, which is a much more serious and present threat today. Um, so those are the, some of the things that I would deprioritize. Um, probably the supreme priorities would be maintaining a military edge over China and competing and leading in strategic industries. Uh, these are the things that really matter. Um, the first, because you never know when that moment of military confrontation might come and a lot rides on the outcome. And the second, because ultimately uh, nations rise and fall because of their economies and um, their you know, preeminence in the leading industries of the day. Um, so those are the things that we really need to get right. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. So speaking about that, John, Reflecting on this paper, it, it, it sort of you make the point, and I, I think I agree with you wholeheartedly that if you sort of zoom out 
um, 10 plus years, the broader, you know, innovation, ecosystem, productivity growth um, is what's going to be driving the ability for countries to invest in their militaries and have the firms that do leading technologies much more than, you know, tinkering around the edges of, oh, are we a little tougher or a little less tough with respect to export controls? And I think it's it's revealing and, and a bit of a bummer that it seems these topics get a hell of a lot more uh, coverage and attention than um, talking about innovation systems. Um, am I missing something? What, what's the what's the bias here? Am I a China tech analyst? So I'm just reading the wrong. My Twitter feed is like, you know, has the wrong stuff in it. What is um, uh, um, what's 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 going on in the, the sort of relative overemphasis of these questions versus um, uh, 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 the, the big ones around long term uh, uh, technological development and innovation? You're absolutely right, Jordan. And there's so many examples of this, they're hard to enumerate. But just at a broad level, um, the U.S. government has spent much of the five, last five years spending um, tremendous energy broadening and intensifying every restrictive measure under the sun. Um, our export control system looks very different from the way it did before. Um, our treatment of Chinese uh, graduate student and researcher visas has been you know, greatly altered. Um, we've spun up entire new regulatory constructs like this ICTS supply chain security rule. And now we're talking about large scale outbound investment screening. Uh, these are things that have either never existed um, or would potentially even be precedents on an international st uh, stage. So there's been tremendous energy focused on the defense. And yet, what have we really done offensively? What have we really done to run faster, to invest in ourselves? It's only now in 2022 that China, uh, that, that Congress is debating and looking to reconcile these two big China tech innovation bills, uh, USICA and the America Competes Act. And it's not a guarantee that they'll even go through. And the amount of money that they're spending is ultimately rather modest. Um, so let me explain why I think that is. Um, one is that defensive actions are just much easier. Um, so I document in my report that the U.S. government, the executive branch, has extraordinary discretion to implement almost any sanction or restriction that it would like with very wide legislative and judicial purview. So there's no legislation needed. There's no need to cajole Congress. There's also no need to persuade or cajole other actors like the U.S. business community, universities, foreign governments, China. You can just impose these things. They go into effect very quickly and they're very powerful. Uh, the other thing is that these defensive tools are simply more familiar. I think sanctions have become such a standard, deeply ingrained part of the U.S. national security and international policy toolkit. It's almost a go-to thing to use in any situation. Uh, the Hike Vision episode truly illustrates this. People feel that these correctly, these atrocities are ongoing. They feel that the U.S. government must do something to thwart them. And therefore, the tool that you go to is a sanction. Conversely, industrial policy has been somewhat of a taboo over recent decades, um, although the truth is always more complicated than that, and we sometimes do industrial policy by the back door. The other thing I've noticed as Congress debates these China bills is that sanctions are just a lot less controversial. And specifically, once we start getting into self-investment, self-improvement, we immediately spark all of our normal sclerotic 
political debates about domestic policy. So the America Competes Act is proposing spending tens of billions of dollars on supply chain resilience. And there's a provision in there that supports the role of unions in this spending. And I've talked to Republicans on the Hill who are very animated and agitated about this. Now, if that's the kind of thing that sinks this legislation or sinks this provision, we're in very, very dire straits because we know that we have a great difficulty overcoming these domestic political conflicts. And when we go to the realm of industrial policy, our national security then depends on productive resolution of these longstanding domestic policy issues. One of the expectations that people have had about the sort of rising uh, great power competition with China is that it would sort of invigorate this sense of, uh, you know, needing to, to, to run faster and compete more aggressively. I mean, do you, what sort of hope do you hold out that, that, that uh, a sort of constructive competition in, you know, electric vehicles or, or, or other strategic technologies, um, you know, in the next one or two years? I mean, do you think Congress, do you think this is this sort of mm, exist, I won't call it an existential threat, but, but some, yeah, it gets framed that way, right? Um, you know, does that, does that leave sort of room for us to get our act together? Well, I think, I think part of, what I hear in your question, Charlie, and this is what I believe, is that the U.S. has a ton of things that it needs to do for its own good, irrespective of the China challenge or China tech threats. We really need to restore innovative capacity in our tech industry and become more globally competitive in the industries of the future. We really need to reinvest in our education system on the national scale. We really need to invest in the resilience of our critical infrastructure. And you can see this with the Texas freeze or Hurricane Katrina. These things have nothing to do with China. We know that these systems are very frail and uh, neglected. We also need to restore political integrity and the health of our own political information ecosystem. You know, so as much as we worry about Chinese influence threats, we need to worry about US platforms, US politicians, U.S. media. So there's so much that we need to do already. And I have great fear about the long-term direction of our country and our governance capacity and stability. So one argument is that China can be a jolt to the system to allow us to finally do some of these things. Now, if that works, then that's great. It's deeply necessary. Now, on the other hand, you're kind of riding the tiger a little bit when you do that. Uh, you're whipping up sentiment about an adversary that could securitize our politics, um, that could take us in a more confrontational direction on the international stage. You know, we all tell the story now of a triumphal Cold War and how we were united and, you know, we took out the bad guys. You know, a lot of trauma and damage was done internally along the way. Um, McCarthyism, um, you know, laxity on civil rights, um, so I do worry that we could be inviting some of those same forces um, deeper into our body politic um, if we use the you know beat China route. Um, but then again, we may not have a choice. In that in that stump speech, you, you you made the case that America has to get his act together, which yeah, totally on board with. Um, we alluded to earlier, however, thinking about sort of second order impacts, not just on the commercial side of things but also um, for foreign governments around the world. Um, you spent a lot of time thinking about Iran uh, back in the day. I'm curious, you know, I know you're not a China expert, but like, what do you think are the, where do you think are the limits to trying to kind of game out 
how uh, adversaries can respond to your um, uh, um, to, 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 to your um, policy moves in the in the tech space and beyond. Yeah, so I focused on Iran uh, for a number of years when I was an intelligence analyst. Um, and I learned at least a couple lessons here that I bring with me into this China work now and that I think are crucially important for us to keep in mind. Um, first of all, it's so difficult to assess and predict a foreign leader's strategic intentions. Um, and sometimes when I was doing that work, I would think to how well I could predict my own country's leaders. So I'm a very close observer of U.S. politics and policy. I live in Washington, D.C. I'm a political junkie. I read all the news about policy developments. I still have a so-so record about predicting either who's going to win an election or what are going to be the big moves coming out of Washington, D.C. So, for example, this news about hike vision potentially going on the SDN list, that surprised me, right? So now think about all of the information I have access to, the rich cultural understanding of decades of following these same people, right? So I know who Joe Biden is over decades. I know who Lindsey Graham is over decades. And I've followed these people's careers. I can think about how they all fit together. Now think about how taking away all of that access, right? And now I'm looking at a foreign country. Now, now I'm an intelligence analyst and I'm probably not a China studies expert. I may have some language capability. I may have only spent a few years tracking a specific foreign leader. Um, I don't have as rich an understanding of you know every Chinese newspaper. And by the way, now that we're in a foreign context, it's an authoritarian political system. And by the way, now we're talking about a, a fundamentally different authoritarian political system that we can only crudely analogize to our own or to other authoritarian governments. Um, whether we're talking about Iran or we're talking about China, uh, these are societies in which publicly available information is highly controlled, manipulated, and, and far more deceptive than in the United States. There's also no culture of leaks, right? Um, so you can pretty much know what the U.S. administration is up to by reading the New York Times and the Washington Post. Like, they leaked the Hickvision thing. So we don't get those leaks coming out of Iran or China in the same way. Um, so it taught me a lot of humility about just the epistemic challenges of understanding any foreign polity or society. Uh, the other thing that it taught me that I think is crucially important to remember for this China work is the U.S. government has really, really, really done its utmost to change Iranian behavior across a number of different domains and at times has had an implicit goal of destabilizing and disrupting the Iranian regime. And it's largely failed in those. And that's a reminder to me of the limits of U.S. power on the world stage and the limits of tools like sanctions. Uh, we put in place some of the strongest sanctions that have ever been seen against Iran. And Iran is a much, much smaller, weaker, and less politically resilient country than China is. Um, and yet we really haven't achieved anywhere close to our goals. So I think we need to have due humility in thinking about how tools like sanctions and restrictions can change Chinese behavior or certainly uh, change its political system. Yeah. Um, Joseph Terigian in an episode that'll be coming out soon made a really profound point where he was kind of going through all of the um, dynamics around leadership transitions in China. And when you read all the memoirs, the people fighting these fights don't know what's happening. 
Mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. you know, if you are a CCP official and you spent your entire life in this system and you've reached, like, the top mm-hmm. 20 and you're still shooting in the dark, the idea that, you know, 29-year-old John Bateman with, you know, HSK 5+, plus, um, is going to be able to, um, to, 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 to read the tea leaves mm-hmm. in a way that is better. I mean, you know, I think there are, I think there are certain things you can have more and less degrees of confidence on and, and sort of fights around personnel are probably some of the hardest. Right. But, um, uh, that, that said, I, I think the, I think the, 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 the humility is a, is a really important thing. That's, which is not to say that the CIA shouldn't, shouldn't have had a China initiative before, you know, January, 2022. Um, but, um, uh, yeah, there are just like, just like in the sort of, tech future emerging technologies projection space there are limits to how um uh, um you know how much clarity you can get on on any of these sorts of questions absolutely yeah i mean you know human intelligence signals intelligence these are incredibly powerful tools and i read and saw things in the intelligence community that were absolutely mind-blowing to me in terms of the level of granularity that the u.s government can get on some of the hardest intelligence targets imaginable And yet still, walking the dog from that exquisite collection, which is so expensive, so difficult to produce and maintain, still, even then, it was so difficult as an analyst to answer some of the deepest questions about strategic intentions of the foreign adversary. If we do this, they'll respond how. Where is all of this going? Um, it's, It's not as easy as it sounds. It was, um, uh, it is remarkable because when you see the, like, there's some, there's some, like, some really cool survey of policymakers on, like, what they read and what they think is important. And, um, there's, like, a bar chart. It was, I think the initial push was, like, to understand how much, uh, you know, classic, like, political science and international relations journals matter. And those were, like, they they got, like, 5%. And, um, and sort of, like, think tanks and newspapers were like 40% and then Intel and stuff was another 40%. And and what is, what was really surprising to me about that is like, you'd figure, okay, being able to, you know, read everyone's mail, um, would be able, would, would slightly outweigh Jordan Schneider giving a random quote to, um, uh, to, uh, to a newspaper just because like, you know, I read stuff online and like have thoughts. Um, but, um, the doing the open source work, um, the fact that it is, can sort of compete at uh, on a level playing field with the folks who have access to literally everything is um, uh, is is really revealing. I thought. Yeah, I mean, one thought that I often had about U.S. intelligence is, um, in most cases, the things that you can find out through that tool will ultimately become public anyway, um, or are broadly consistent with what's available in the public domain. It just may be more detailed and you might find out sooner. Um, The other thought that I had is now I've been in the intelligence community. I've worn policy hats. I'm finally at a think tank. I deeply regret not spending far more time in my government roles engaging with people in the open source world because there's just a tremendous wealth of expertise and a lot of problems that we define as intelligence problems, they're fundamentally are problems of assessment and prediction. Intelligence can be one tool and discipline and set of information that is used to inform those assessments. But it's 
frequently not the only or best tool, especially when we're thinking about very complicated uh, assessments that aren't easily determined by just access to exquisite information. We, we, were, we were talking earlier, John, about, uh, before we turn the mic on, about the challenge of once you try to have rigor in answering these questions, how kaleidoscopic it gets. And, you know, very quickly you can be like, okay, here's like the $500,000 answer to that question. Here's like the $10 million answer to that question. Here's like the $1 billion, let's buy some spy satellites answer to that question. And even then, I, I don't know, maybe just reflecting on that, like when is enough? Um, how do you, especially around questions of, of, of uh, policy and emerging technologies, like where, where do you, where, where do you think are the biggest ROIs and where do you start hitting diminishing returns in terms of, um, you know, strategies and methodologies for exploring these sorts of questions? I'm trying to think how to answer that. It's such a tough question. Ultimately, policymakers need multiple different kinds of analyses. Um, so what I try to do in this report is offer a conceptual framework with enough real world data and grounding to make it relevant to policy decisions. Ideally, when we then get to specific policy decisions at the level of designating this or that company, imposing this or that export control, barring Chinese visas from this or that institution that might have this or that relationship to Chinese military civil fusion, uh, we would then be operating at a level of much deeper granularity. Um, on the other hand, you can't just go by analysis paralysis either. Uh, it's very easy for a thinker and a writer like me to just say, get more data, think harder, wait, decide when you have all the facts. Um, there's real limits to that. Uh, so, for example, I discussed this issue of Chinese influence operations. My read of the studies that have been available so far shows that social media-based influence operations might not be as effective as people think. On the other hand, mostly we just don't know that much about it. It's a huge research gap, and it will take probably years to really develop a robust evidence base to understand the efficacy of online influence operations. Now, we may not have years to wait. Policymakers need to act now to decide whether TikTok is or is not a threat to national security. Um, so I think that sometimes it's not about spending a ton of money. It's just about reaching outside the walls of the government to talk to informed people and get a wide range of perspectives and coming to the best decision that you can that is analytically based curious, asking the right questions. I mean, it's just free to just ask the right questions. And, and so often we fail to do that. I mean, that the problem is the people answering them have vested interests always. Um, right. And to not have an, to not have enough analytic capability, which isn't, doesn't have some sort of financial uh, stake riding on the outcome of the decision right. makes this stuff way harder, which is, which is why I think it's so important for the government to to, to spend that $500 million a year and create, you know, Senator Bennett's uh, little tech tech analysis hub or whatever it turns out be, turns out to be. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree with that. John, coming back to like defining the battle space, mm. I guess, um, this idea of like picking emerging technologies. Mm -hmm. uh, you said you wanted to start with the history of this. So this isn't the first period of um, 
techno-nationalism in the United States or worry about that we're somehow falling behind in or losing control of or insufficiently catalyzing emerging technologies for U.S. interests. Uh, we've gone through this before, uh, most recently in the intense economic and technological competition with Japan in the 1980s and 90s. One of the things that emerged from that in the 90s and into the 2000s was what were then called critical technology lists. Uh, a number of these were put together by the White House, by other government groups, and by outside groups. This was an effort at the time to think through what are the key technologies that are critical for whatever reason in the United States, and then what can we do about them? There have been some smart retrospective histories of these critical technologies lists, and they've disclosed some basic problems with the enterprise. Um, first of all, they really ballooned and became all-inclusive. Um, I think some of them had more than 100 line items in them. Uh, there are bureaucratic reasons for that in that everyone just keeps shoving things into the list out of a sort of caution and fiefdom-like interest, and no one wants to pair things off of a list because that's kind of like reducing the Homeland Security alert. Uh, no one wants to be responsible for that. There was a lot of vagueness in these lists. So at one point, one of the lists described a critical technology as programming languages. Okay, so what can I do with that? I mean, yes, we know that critical that programming languages are in some sense critical, but it just it's it's so vague you can't operationalize that into any policy. Um, of course, there's the predictive failures. Um, I kind of make fun of the 1995 list um, in which virtual reality they had LCD panels too. That was like the big thing. And at one point. maybe LCD panels were economically critical in some way. Um, I guess we don't produce that many of them today, and that seems to be fine. Um, they notably said virtual reality was a critical technology, and it wasn't. Um, they also didn't say that mobile phones or devices would be critical, even though that technology certainly existed in 1995. And we were, uh, we were, we were pretty close to the point of those really taking off and becoming a, a found foundation of future innovation. So with all of these problems together, these critical technology lists were ultimately deemed non-policy relevant. They, they really didn't push the ball forward. Um, now, just to take us up to the future, um, we have similar lists today. The Trump administration revived this. In October of 2020, they came out with their critical and emerging technologies lists. And you wouldn't be surprised to hear it suffered from many of the same failings because these failings are somewhat inherent to the enterprise. It's, it's very difficult to overcome them. Also, they released this list weeks before the presidential election, so it was kind of questionable what utility it would have. The Biden administration ultimately took this list, uh, kept it largely as is in terms of the broad categories, um, but then deepened it and created more subcategories, which again is useful. But then even the Biden administration seemed to understand the difficulty of what it was trying to do, it said in there in this italicized sentence, this is not guidance for policymaking or for technology investment <laughs> or development. Now, why do we have the list then? If it's not guidance for policymaking or technology investment, clearly that's what we're trying to do. Um, but I think the administration is, is wrestling with the inherent difficulties of the task. It's, it's interesting. I, I was talking with... Uh... Uh, a friend who works in an industry who's not on that list. And he was like, why aren't we on the list? 
we're really important. I'm like, are you sure you want to be on the list? Because, like, there are upsides and downsides to, like, getting caught in this, like, U.S.-China tech mess. Um, but, yeah, it's it's really uh, it, it's really interesting because it, it is a, um, uh, it is a you know, accordion-like um, in how you, how you can sort of define it. If, if I could just add on to this. Um, so Congress, in this export control legislation that passed a few years ago, called upon the administration to put in place new export controls on what it described as emerging and foundational technologies. And it really did not give a ton of explanation for what these emerging and technologies are. It really did not give a ton of explanation for what these emerging and foundational technologies are. Rather, they just seem to be things that aren't currently being controlled under existing authorities, but should be. So it's a very vague intent, and if anything, it just expresses the belief of Congress that we're not controlling enough. So then you go to applying this, and the Trump administration is trying to figure out, you know, what's an emerging technology. Um, it basically just uses the Made in China 2025 list as its opening gambit. It publishes this thing with almost all the same categories and says, folks, you know, which of these are emerging technologies? And we're talking very, very broad. Um, advanced materials, artificial intelligence, uh, data storage, you know, just the biggest categories imaginable. And the result is kind of what you might think. Nothing ended up getting happened. Uh, uh, there was strong pushback from industry and academia. Uh, no sweeping regulations of emerging and foundational technologies were ever put in place. A, a very small handful of um, select and, and circumscribed export controls were put in place instead. And in Congress is, is then left you know, kind of exasperated, saying, well, where are our emerging and foundational technology controls? Uh, to which one answer is, well, we've always been putting controls on sensitive technologies through the export control regime. That's kind of what it exists to do. Um, it really isn't clear guidance to just tell the administration, control things you weren't controlling before. So given, at the same time, you know, one also has to sort of see the other side of the argument that, you know, things like semiconductors, you know, not, you know, not all semiconductors that probably should be controlled are on export control lists that currently exist. Um, and yet there is sort of this consensus within the administration that, you know, something must be done. And, and through various tools, you know, investment screening regimes and whatnot, those are, those are, being, those are being controlled. But, I mean, is there... To, to sort of operationalize the centrist view, um, you know, is what sort of things would you put on this foundational list, or is the is the idea itself just so so vague uh, as to be inoperable? So I often find myself in the position of critiquing the imposition of new restrictive measures or seeking to you know slow down or ask people to consider new sanctions, restrictions, export controls. And that's really because I think we've reached close to a point of saturation there. That's not to say that we don't need any more controls. I think in some cases we do, and I'll describe a few for you. Um, but I think we've gone pretty far toward imposing strong controls on many of the evidently strategic technologies, like 5G telecommunications equipment, which we can all recognize is this 
once in a generation investment in what will become the strategic digital terrain of the future around the world. So we've taken a very, very tough, uniquely tough line on Huawei and to a lesser extent, ZTE. That makes eminent sense to me. We needed to address that closing window of opportunity to prevent Chinese technological dominance of the strategic sector. We've also taken strong measures on semiconductors, um, often on a company by company basis. Um, so companies like Huawei uh, that are on the entity list, we have very unique restrictions on Huawei for getting access to semiconductors. Again, very tough, very powerful. Um, probably the most important thing we've done on semiconductors is work with countries like the Netherlands to prevent China from importing advanced semiconductor fabrication equipment, like advanced lithography machines. So one could argue that for the things that are clearly the most strategic technologies and are controllable choke points, either within the ambit of U.S. government authority or of our close like-minded partners, we've done a lot of what we need to do already. Um, now, that said, there are a few areas where I think we can go farther. Um, with Xinjiang, for example, it's unclear to me why we're allowing any significant technology to be exported to Xinjiang. Uh, currently, we have a very broad-based presumptive ban on imports from Xinjiang, but still we have a rather selective application of export controls going to Xinjiang. I think we could be tougher there because of the risks of diversion and of ultimately um, making it more economical to employ forced labor in Xinjiang. Another area that I worry about uh, is very specifically swarming drone technology. And I call this out in the report because of all of the militarily relevant technologies that DOD has warned about, drone swarms are one of those that many independent analysts routinely cite as a potentially game-changing technology. It's the kind of technology that could actually swing a battle in the Pacific where a number of low-cost uh, you know, aerial or naval drones are able to somehow neutralize or incapacitate a large immobile system like a U.S. aircraft carrier. Now, China has probably the world's best commercial drone technology already, and it's probably the leader or certainly a leader in drone swarming. But there are probably things that we can do to make sure that we're not contributing to China getting an even more advanced lead in that area, whether it's putting on end user or end use type restrictions for certain subcomponents that they might want to import from us, or looking very specifically at student and researcher visas from Chinese nationals who want to work on you know, boutique AI algorithms that apply very narrowly to swarming technology. Those are some areas that we could probably be even more restrictive than we are today. Yeah, I mean, this comes back to the like offensive versus defensive frame, because mm -hmm. no, no offense, John, but those sound pretty lame. Um, but uh, the uh, just because they're what? Because they're too narrow, or what? Well, no, I just I, in the broad in the broad scheme of things, I don't think that's going to stop a. I, I don't think those proposals are going to stop a Chinese drone swarm program, or you know, maybe maybe change change capacity by like you know five percent on the margin or something. But but what is but what would change it? is having Mike Brown from DIU be able to do his goddamn job. Um, and as opposed to, you know, give give the sort of quotes that he did recently when he left, um, uh, when he announced that he was he was leaving and saying like, look, no one is, 
no one, no one from DOD wants to buy commercial technology. Like, please fund us. We have all these great, cool ideas. And um, that sort of like, I, it just seems to me, this is like a classic example where like the way to like solve this issue is, uh, you know, sort of the, the, the balance between what you, the, the, the return you're going to get from like trying to degrade Chinese capability on this thing versus, you know, just fixing the way that uh, the U.S. Department of Defense like pays for cool stuff. Um, it, it seems to be really mismatched in this case. A really terrific example of this emerged very recently with this news report that DOD was concerned about the People's Liberation Army somehow exploiting U.S. small business programs. Now, probably they are, right? And I, I don't exactly know to what quantification that's occurring. But let's say the PLA is able to get, I don't know, $100, $150 million worth of funding from these small business programs to do whatever skullduggery that they're doing from our perspective. Well, if the concern is then preventing the PLA from exploiting these systems, so to respond to that, people in Congress are already proposing new forms of screening mechanisms to make sure that China can't exploit these small business programs. But a screening mechanism runs a very high risk of further burdening and slowing down the very limited, strained access that DOD has to small business innovations already. Every senior DOD leader who has looked at this problem and every independent military analyst has been raising hue and cry for many years now about the difficulty that DOD has acquiring and ingesting and utilizing innovative technology from the private sector specifically from small businesses and startups that are not traditional defense suppliers. So I think it would be the height of shooting ourselves in the face to impose some screening requirement that could slow down these small business funds by two or three months just to stop China from getting access to a few defense dollars here and there. Yeah, I mean, I haven't I haven't read the like, you know, people read all this like United Front stuff about like what their secret aims are, but like, <laughs> If I if I was working for them, um, and you know, my like my optimal outcome would not be getting the hundred million dollars a year or whatever. It would be seeding stories like this to blow up programs that are actually kind of good. Nailed it. You nailed it, Jordan. We got to close on something a little bigger. I think the I have a, I have a, I have a flipping question. <laughs> okay. Okay. All right. Let me ask my stupid question. So, um, John. There was this like one, I think like an anthropologist who hang who just hung out in the IC for a while and sort of wrote about the different cultures of the different organizations. And it had like one paragraph about the DIA being like the place where smart people go to die. Um, but the, you did a great job this hour. Um, is everyone <laughs> like you? Are you the one that made it out? Like, what's the what, what's the what's the deal here? Uh, well, I appreciate the pat on the head, Jordan. Uh, I think you've done a great job too. Um, Thanks. You know. Let me just generalize about the military establishment. Um, I think the human capital base that we have access to there is very varied. Um, I met some of the most talented, dedicated, smart, hardworking people there who deeply cared about their problem set and worked so hard to get things right and had a phenomenal amount of intellect and brain power to throw the problem. Yeah, I also met a number of people who were not those things. Um, 
And this, I think, is of concern to us as a nation because people who feel talented and want greater levels of responsibility more quickly and greater recognition based on that talent uh, often realize that they need to leave the government in order to do that. Uh, They could still support the broader U.S. national interest in a lot of different ways, um, but I worry that lots of government agencies are the places where talented people, you know, reach career cul-de-sacs and are not able to further progress within the system. Um, And that there can sometimes be a culture of uh, complacence, um, which I think has larger implications. Maybe any any closing words, John, on what sort of mentalities or approaches you saw in the people that do this sort of thing, right? We've gotten very good as a U.S. government, as a policy community, as a body politic at discussing threats and risks related to Chinese technology and our interdependence with China. What we need to fundamentally do is take a step back and ask the question, what kind of relationship do we want to have with China in the technology realm and beyond? It's a very, very simple, almost obvious question. It's a blatantly obvious question. And yet it's so rare to find analysis in Washington that begins with a clear answer to that question. Typically, we either don't think in terms of an ultimate relationship that we are seeking to construct over time that would be at least stable and beneficial to the United States, if if not to China and other countries. But when we do pose that question, um, we often don't spell out very specifically and clearly what that vision looks like so that it can be exposed to critique and debate. John, what song do you have for us today? I'm so glad you asked that, Jordan. I I spent as much time prepping for this question as for the entire rest of the podcast. Um, (laughs) So my mind immediately goes to Bob Dylan here because decoupling, what is that if not a messy, impartial breakup between two conflicted lovers with a lot of cognitive (laughs) dissonance and self-deception? And I'm, of course, describing much of the Bob Dylan oeuvre, of which I'm a huge fan. But when I went back to listen to Bob Dylan's songs, I actually came across one of my old favorites. It's called Talkin' John Birch Paranoid Blues, and it's basically a send-up of the Cold War paranoia that was setting in in the early 1960s, where people were seeing communist influence um, under every rug and behind every door. Uh, I think that to some extent we're seeing the rise of that today vis-a-vis China, um, and Jordan, because I work at the Carnegie Endowment, I may humbly suggest the version recorded at Carnegie Hall. If that's if if that's the, the centrist anthem, <laughs> then, then don't think twice. It's all right. Is uh, going to be a restrictionist. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is this is fantastic information. My pleasure, Jordan. Charlie, thanks for having me. I was feeling sad and kind of blue I didn't know what I was gonna do The communists was coming around They was in the air, they was on the ground They was all over
So run down most hurriedly and join the John Burt Society. Got me a secret membership card, went back home to the yard, started looking on the sidewalk. Under the hedges. When I got up in the morning, looked under my bed, I was looking every place for them gall darn reds. Looked behind the sink and under the floor, looked in the glove compartment of my car, couldn't find any. Looked behind the clothes, behind the chair, looking for them reds everywhere. Looked up my chimney hole, even deep down inside my toilet bowl, they got away. I heard some footsteps by the front porch door, so I grabbed my shotgun from the floor. Snuck around the house with a huff and a hiss, saying, hands up, you communist, it was the mailman. He punched me out. When I was sitting home alone and I started to sweat, I figured they was in my TV set. I peeked behind the picture frame, got a shock from my feet that hit my brain. Them reds did it. Hooting any television. I quit my job so I could work alone Got a magnifying glass like Sherlock Holmes Following some clues from my detective bag I discovered red stripes and the American flag Betsy Ross Eisenhower, he's a Russian spy, Lincoln and Jefferson and a Roosevelt guy. To my knowledge, there's just one man that's really and truly an American. That's George Lincoln Rockwell. I know for a fact he hates commies because he picketed the movie Exodus. I finally started thinking straight when I ran out of things to investigate. I couldn't imagine nothing else, and I'm home investigating myself. Oh, but don't find out too much. Good God. <laughs>